Father, when the storms of life, when the flood waters rise, when we really need comfort, when we really need strength and encouragement, we find that in your name. What a strong and mighty tower, a place like no other where we can find not only comfort and safety, but love and acceptance and mercy. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the work that your son accomplished on the cross. We thank you for the Holy Spirit indwelling us, giving us life. We pray today that as we look into your word, we continue to ponder these amazing things that we've sung, that our hearts would be enlivened, that we would bring glory to your name, through Christ our Lord, amen. Please be seated. I did want to add to some of the comments that we had made uh, this morning because a thought struck me that has never struck me before, and and uh, so hopefully I won't forget that. Usually when you have a new thought, you know, that dawns on you, those tend to stick. But this word precious that we were looking at, uh, it, it appears in a number of contexts. There's a semantic range to each word that even we speak in English, and certainly the same is true in Greek, the same is true in Hebrew. What you may not know is that that word appears in 1 Samuel chapter 3. And it says there that in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. It's the same word. The word of the Lord was rare. So as a part of the semantic range of that word, precious, is the notion of rare. And here's the thought that hit me. Can anything be rare to the Lord? Anything. He is the creator of all things. He made all things. What could possibly be rare to him? That's when the thought struck. We, my friends, are non-renewable resources. (laughs) There's a fixed number in the church for eternity. There will not be one more or one less than what that number will be. God only knows. That makes us rare precious in the sight of God. The English poet Alexander Pope wrote, Hope springs eternal in the human breast. Man never is, but always to be blessed. Now, I I think for the human race, if you look at the human race as a whole, Pope's words probably ring true but not for every or each individual's story. I mean, people lose hope all the time. 
Just over three weeks ago, we celebrated Veterans Day, different from Memorial Day, where we celebrate our fallen heroes, but similar. Two weeks before Veterans Day in 2009, then-Secretary of Veterans Affairs Eric Shinseki said this, Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, Secretary Gates, members of Congress, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. I am honored to be here and excited about the potential for this summit to help us address some of our most pressing and vexing mental health issues. The spirit of our service is captured in the lines of the Soldier's Creed. No matter the uniform, no matter the nation, most everyone I've met who has read the four seminal lines of the Creed agree that they define what service to the nation is all about. If you're a military member, none of these will sound unusual to you. I will always place the mission first. I will never accept defeat. I will never quit, and I will never leave a fallen comrade behind. Then after a few more questions, because this was a summit on mental health and a few more comments, he says this, who's vulnerable? Everyone. Warriors suffer emotional injuries just as they do physical ones. The residual effects of combat manifested themselves in my life. You have to be strong to prevail. You must be loved, respected, and supported to weather the worst of storms. And then he said this, which at the time, and I suppose even now still is, he made a startling statement. This was in 2009, Veterans Day, just before. More veterans have committed suicide since 2001 than we have lost on the battlefields of Iraq or Afghanistan. Each one a tragedy. Now, sadly, that has not slowed down. That has, that has not dissipated at all. And since 2000 now... Uh, since 2009 until now, an additional 70,000 veterans have taken their own lives. People give up hope every day. And today, as a nation, we face new challenges, among them COVID-19. According to the CDC, adults across the board reported elevated levels of adverse mental health conditions, substance abuse, suicidal ideation. In fact, a June uh, study showed that COVID-19 and lockdowns were having a pronounced negative effect on our physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being. I mean, symptoms, I'm just going to give you what the report says. Symptoms of anxiety disorder up three times from the previous year. Symptoms of depressive disorder, up four times from the same time the year before. 10%, an additional 10% of the adult population had begun to abuse substances, alcohol, marijuana, and so forth. Suicidal ideation also elevated twice the level as it was the previous time the last year. However, for young adults, it was skyrocketed. One in four 
had seriously thought about suicide this year. And then there's another area, too, that we don't think often of. Caregiver workload, especially those, and I'm quoting from the study, multi-generational caregivers, let me translate that for you. Think of adult children caring for their aging parents. They are a particularly vulnerable group. And that's, I mean, that's easy to understand. Over the past year, caring for elderly often meant peering through glass pane windows rather than hugs and holding of hands. And one obituary that I read just two days ago, it said his last days were much lonelier than they needed to be. And you can you can hear the pain and the anger in that. Hope. People people lose hope every day. Now most of us can maintain the face because we have these social patterns that must be maintained. We can put on a brave face, but just below the surface, very often the pain lurks. And the tendency for many is to give up because human beings are really hope-based creatures. And we really are. We cannot survive long without hope. I can't go into any extended uh, things about that, but just uh, let me invite you to read Viktor Frankl's search uh, for meaning where he gives illustration after illustration of people who, number one, gave up hope and then died. Hope gone, death follows. It's, it's, an, it's, an, amazing, it's an amazing thing. But something else that he did write that I will talk about is that life only has meaning when we have hope that neither suffering nor circumstances nor even death itself can destroy. So we, we have to ask ourselves, what kind of hope is that? Because that's a kind of hope that has to, by definition, go beyond the grave. It has to be in something that is greater than we are. And what do we hope in? I'll tell you, most of us hope we hope in our education. We hope in our jobs and our careers. We hope in our family members. We hope in our spouses and so forth. And all those things, as wonderful as they are, are fleeting and passing. And when we put our hope in anything in this life that suffering or circumstances can take away, then our lives are always going to be characterized by disappointment and anxiety as well. The only way we can face difficult circumstances is by placing something, our hope in something that cannot be destroyed. Only when we uh, hope in something that will not pass away Specifically, when we hope in Jesus Christ, can we move beyond our present circumstances? And it's only then when we know that our future is secure, such that not even death itself can destroy it. So we want to ask a few questions about this. First, 
How do we gain a perspective um, of hope when life is hopeless? I don't know all of your life situations. I don't know all of the life situations of those on a live stream. But I do know this, just from a percentage, some of you are struggling with hope this very day. And where is it that you go to find hope? Where do we turn in the Bible? And then if it's found there, what must you do to receive it? And that might be surprising to you as we go through this. So we have to stop. We need to take a deep breath and we need to listen to God, the God of hope. He will lift us up. And so let's talk about hope for just a couple of minutes. One, hope in English has more of a notion of a strong desire or a wish. Like I, as all of you, hope that 2021 will be better than 2020. <sighs> I hope the Cowboys will win. <laughs> now, now, here's the problem with that. The one, the latter, is certainly not wed to reality. <laughs> and the former is just a wish or a desire. As far as we know, and this is a depressing thought, not to depress anybody, we don't need that anymore, but... But 2021, I mean, 2020 might, might be the high water mark for a few years. We don't know. But nevertheless, hope as found in the Bible is different from hope that is found in English usage. When I, I, I hope we uh, do this this afternoon, or I hope we do, uh, do that. These are just expressions of wishes and, and desires, but in the Bible, even though it carries that same subjective feeling with it, because hope gives you this tremendous uh, buoyancy of, of, of feeling, nevertheless, its primary use is in the certainty of the reality of a future event that will come to pass. In other words, it's based on certainty. It's not based on a desire or a uh, wish. Now, obviously, we know in this life there are very few things that are certain, not many at, at all. But nevertheless, uh, when it comes to God, the promises of God are, in fact, certain. So far from a wish, our hopes should be based on, embedded in the promises of God. In fact, we're told that Christ endured the cross for the hope. Since when does Christ hope? Isn't that the hope? What would he hope for? It was for the hope set before him that he endured the cross. So why was that? It's the certainty, the certain knowledge that this was going to happen. So hope is a as uh, the, the reality that your future does not depend on you. Whew. I'm going to say a little bit more about that because I think we goof this one. Uh, I think we goof this one all up. The truth of our hope in Christ is so wonderful 
and free from corruption that on that future day that no tear will ever fall, at least not a tear of sadness or discouragement or grief. A lie will never be told. And insecurity will never be felt. I could, of course, say many more things. But it's not a wish. It's not a feeling. It's a reality awaiting us in heaven. I want you to look. This is where we'll spend the balance of our time. It's in Romans fifteen, thirteen. Romans fifteen thirteen says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may be may abound in hope. May the God of hope. What a wonderful, what a wonderful title, the God of hope. And I mean, it sounds here that as if Paul is ending his his message, but he's he's not. He's just so overwhelmed by what he just said. And let me tell you what: uh, unless you've done a deep dive into this passage, you're going to say, "Why in the world would Paul be overwhelmed by what he's just said?" And uh, and hopefully, I'll be able to tease some of that out, so that he gives a a benedictory prayer right in the middle of the text. So for Paul to say this at the end of this discussion, so those of you who, who know, you're probably, you're probably asking yourself, you know, John, you're right. Why in the world is he talking about the God of hope here? Because what he just talked about was eating meat, sacrificed to idols and drinking and having parties before the Lord's Supper and all that. What's going on here? People are getting offended back and forth. And he is saying that there is something in here that is so profound that it leads him to worship in the middle of his text. God is the God of hope. I mean, just reading that fills me with a, a, a sense of, of joy because that's his desire. His desire is for us to be filled with hope and joy and peace. You see, there's a correlation between these. Look at the text. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And abounding in hope is where peace and joy come from. Now, joy is an emotion that one you know, feels related to the anticipation of seeing your hopes fulfilled. Okay, so it's hope deferred that makes the heart sick. It is hope fulfilled that fills the heart with joy. It only makes sense. And But peace is also related in that hope forms the assurance of the reality of the promise of God so that you can be at peace. You don't need to worry about the future. God has it in his hands. So by definition, this is experienced in in our hearts, in our minds, the, the totality of our being when we trust him. 
And not just when we trust him for salvation, when we trust him today. It's when we feel accepted in his presence. Most of us, much of the time, do not feel accepted in the presence of God. We do not see ourselves as precious to him. We see ourselves as some less than worthy, less than holy. And so it is in our sin we are. But once we trusted Christ as our Savior, once filled with the Holy Spirit, we are precious to him. I want you to reflect on this thing for a moment. In verse 13, the God of hope fills us with joy and peace through the hope abounding in us by this power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I believe this is where the, the key to this entire text rests. It's embedded here. Because all too often, we view hope as something that it's not. What we view hope as is actually just optimism. So we look out there and we, we find the silver cloud, the, the silver linings, right, in the clouds. So we, we, we find that we look there and uh, we, we find it. But we also, as I heard last night, a major preacher say, we choose joy. Okay? Maybe so, but it's we think, we look, we find. Did you, did, you notice, did you notice the language that I'm using as opposed to the language that the text used? It's not in there. We didn't do anything. We didn't search, we didn't look, we didn't find, we didn't choose. In fact, Viktor Frankl has something to say about this too as well. He says it in a different context, but I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to change it up a little bit. He's talking about success. He says, don't aim at success. The more you aim at it and make it your target, the more you will miss it. For success, like happiness, cannot be pursued. It must ensue, and it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. Now, he's a secular guy. Happiness, he goes on to say, must happen. And the same holds for success. You have to let it happen by not caring about it. I want you to listen to what your conscience commands you to do and go on to carry it out to the best of your knowledge, then you will live to see that in the long run, in the long run, I say, success will follow you precisely because you had forgotten to think about it. Now, there's great wisdom here. There's tremendous wisdom here born of tremendous suffering. If you don't know who Viktor Frankl is, you need to look him up. He's a Holocaust survivor. But the great wisdom that's there that needs to be translated into our Christian community and based on what verse 13 tells us that hope is not from us but from the Holy Spirit. Did you read that? 
not from our optimistic stance. It's not from, I choose hope. I'll tell you what, there are situations where you could say that all day long. No. Therefore, I want to modify Frankel's words and say it this way. Don't aim at hope or, for that matter, joy or peace. The more you aim at it and make it a target, the more you're going to miss it. For hope, like happiness, cannot be pursued. It must ensue, and it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself or the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself, namely the Holy Spirit of God. Hope will follow you precisely because you have forgotten to think about it in your pursuit of God. You see, hope is something that God, he is the God of hope. He's the one who gives you hope. And out of hope is born uh, joy and peace. And I could say something about love from 1 Corinthians 13. I'll I'll pass that uh, for now. But what you discover that even though that love is the most important, hope is the most fundamental What does that mean for us? It means this. If you're feeling in your heart, wherever you are right now, a loss of hope or joy or peace, and you're filled rather with anxiety or depression or discouragement, a search for hope will not find it. We have the right diagnosis, but we got the wrong prescription. The right prescription, James uh, James Deloach told of a painting that he uh, saw that really struck him. He's a a pastor of a very large church. And it was an old burned-out mountain shack, and all that remained was a chimney and the smoke going up. And in front of it stood an elderly man in his pajamas. That's all they could get out. And a little boy clutching a pair of patched overalls. And then beneath the picture just simply simply this the grandfather telling his grandson hush child god ain't dead the theology there is that now the house rather than being a reminder of despair becomes a reminder of hope because god which we desperately need because god is there And so now we discover that hope in this life is only complete, it's only whole, it's only unmitigated if we have hope in this life that's based on hope that extends through eternity. Where do we place our belief in that? Well, I mean, of course, in, in God. But what has God revealed to us? I mean, do we have a genuine hope that can be the seed for the hopes that we have in this life now. I mean, in temporal time. I mean, and these these questions are in a strange uh, context. I mean, so now we're going back to what I said earlier. What a strange context for Paul to be doing this. It's the end of this lengthy discussion by Paul about eating meat sacrificed to idols. And, and drinking wine, and that was causing a problem in, in the church. And what in the world does that have to do with hope? So we read in uh, verses 7 through 12, that, Therefore, 
welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, Christ the hope of the Jew, hope of Jews and Gentiles, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, to confirm the, the promises given to the patriarchs, so that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That is, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, and Paul is really hitting this. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the people extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. Now, Paul is talking about this because he's telling them God has already planned this out and this the plan has already been executed and it, it has begun to work itself out in in time and that is when Christ died he accept on the cross when he did his work on the cross he accepted both Jew and Gentile now what we do is we conflate the promises to Israel with the promises to the church, and that's wrong. And that's what Paul is arguing about right here. He's saying, he's saying to the Romans, Romans are not Jews. He's saying to them, okay, uh, if you follow his argument, the, the Jews have the promises. The Jews here, 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 and he just he, he builds this thing up. Where then are the Gentiles? Where do we fit? And this is where he comes in. All, all of this discussion about the hope of the Gentiles fulfilled in the Abrahamic covenant to us. Those outside of Israel are going to be blessed. And in this context of the meat sacrifice to idols and, and the wine, it arises where we find that Christ it, it submitted himself to the circumcision. In other words, Christ became a Jew. And I'm only going to take a couple more minutes with, with this, but it's important that you understand that the Jews and the Gentiles in that day, it, they hated each other. Uh, Gentiles call, uh, or Jews called Gentiles dogs. They wouldn't even eat in their home. I mean, think of your Bible knowledge, right? I mean, Peter got into uh, big trouble with, with this, uh, with Cornelius. And then he got in big trouble again with Paul in, in, in the book of uh, Galatians because of this. And the Gentiles paid it right back. They hated, uh, they hated the Jews, and there was just this, this, all of this, all the time. And Paul argues that Jesus overcame all this, and the way he overcame it was very strange because he himself became a minister of the circumcision. Now, I, I realize some of this is hard to track, but I hope I, I hope that I can, you know, I try to make fairly complex things as, as simple as, as I can do. And what in the world does that have to do with our salvation? Just this. What was the solution to the eating meat and the wine? you already know in your hearts what it is because you know the scripture. Those of you who have read anything about this, you know that it is by limiting your liberty. 
So how do we see this in Christ? God who designed, let me, let me make that Christ who created the human body, made it perfect, exactly as it ought to be. And yet he consented to the act of circumcision. He limited himself by becoming a circumcised Jew. Christ declared that all foods are clean. All foods are clean. Yet he never had a ham sandwich. Not one. He never had any bacon for breakfast. He ate kosher food his entire life. He who was, we're getting closer to the point. He who was without sin insisted with John to receive the baptism of repentance. And John says, what? John says, no, Lord, no. You should baptize me. And Jesus said, allow it to be, for this is the way it becomes us. It is fitting to fulfill all righteousness in Matthew. So he had no reason to be baptized, but he consented to baptism. He who longed to heal the hurts of the world limited himself to the house of Israel. But by doing so, his death on the cross broke all that down so that Jew and Gentile are equal. One of the sweetest scenes in all of Scripture is when Joseph and Mary presented Jesus at the temple. And you'll remember one uh, Simeon by name. The Spirit of God said that you will not die until you see the Lord's Christ. And we read that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And so what is the consolation of Israel? I think that the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, probably states it best. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. But Christ is not only the consolation of Israel. He's also the hope of the nations. I mean, you see, any hope that we have in this world is based on the hope of the nations. Christ became a servant of the circumcision to show God's truthfulness so that the Gentiles might glorify God. Our COVID-19 conscious world thinks that everything has been canceled. And that's leading to a lot of hopelessness. But let me give you a little hope in this world based on your hope in the eternal world. The sun has not been canceled. S-U or S-O. Spring is not canceled. It's just a little ways off. Relationships, they're not canceled. Love is not canceled. Reading, devotion, not canceled. Music is not canceled. Imagination, kindness, compassion, not canceled. Hope, not canceled. God's love for his people, not canceled. And Christmas, they're trying, but Christmas is not canceled because like the Grinch learned, it's not about trees and lights and presents. 
about something that happens in the heart 